Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. Before we uh, begin, let's just pray one more time and ask for God to bless this. Um, Lord, uh, we're so needy for you. God, we're so uh, needy for your spirit to move in our hearts, Lord, that we might do anything of eternal value, Lord, that our lives might glorify you with what we say and do. God, I pray that um, you'd meet with us today, God, that in uh, the preaching, in our listening, in our um, being open to your word. God, that we'd glorify you. Lord, so be with us now, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I like Christmas. I I like the anticipation of it. I like gathering together with family and with friends and taking a little time off. I like the smells of pine and the fireplace and the foods that we eat. I like the traditions that we share and the games that we play and the stories we tell and the songs that we sing. Done rightly this holiday, these days of celebration that we're in, they can inspire us and lead us to worship, to reflect back and see the beauty of who Christ is and what he's done. Speaking of these once-a-year songs that we sing, uh, this morning one of them actually led me to the passage that we're looking at today. In the second verse of the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, it begins this way. O come, thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. And I got to thinking that I've, uh, I've sung the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, since I was a child, and I don't think I've ever questioned what a dayspring was. Not once. I, I bet you haven't either. Um, I assume that it was a name given to Jesus. I assume that a prophet or someone gave it to him at some point. But when I went through my Bible, I couldn't find the word dayspring in it. It wasn't there. At least it wasn't there in my translation. Um, but in the King James translation, which would have been the English-speaking world's Bible, in 1861, at the time that the song was written, Luke chapter 1, verse 78 says this. It says, The day spring from on high hath visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> now our modern translation simply translates this word as sunrise. Some say the dawn which might be a lot more understandable for us today. But isn't that a beautiful picture of the new reality that dawns when Jesus Christ is born? The darkness of sin and death begin to disappear as the light of the glory of God in Jesus Christ comes into the world. And, in, and this verse, this verse about the day spring, it's a part of a prophecy that's recorded in the book of Luke, the prophecy that Daniel just read, given to us by John the Baptist's dad, Zechariah. And there's something unique about this prophecy. I mean, after all the waiting 
the years and the heartache, the blessings and the curses, the kings and the battles from Eden to Egypt to Israel to Babylon and back. This is the last prophecy before the Messiah comes. After all of the waiting, the wait is about to be over. Now, Zechariah wasn't a prophet in the way that Isaiah or Jeremiah was. He didn't write the book of Zechariah, for instance. And if you go back a little bit in the book of Luke to chapter 1, verse 5, we can see that his day job was that he was a priest in the temple. In the course of doing his priestly work, he's visited by the angel Gabriel with a message from God. And Gabriel tells him that after years of trying to have a child that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth are going to have a son who will be a prophet, filled with the Holy Spirit from birth, who with a message of salvation will prepare the way for God's Messiah. And Zechariah responds to the good news of Gabriel by saying, are you sure? (laughs) Because we old. (laughs) And uh, in response, it appears that Gabriel shows some of his personality. He allows it to shine through in the text. He answers Zechariah's objection with what might be the greatest heavenly smackdown ever recorded. Uh, Gabriel says, do you know who I am? (laughs) Do you know who I work for? He says it like this in Luke 1, verse 19. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the word of God is fulfilled. And after living a lifetime without the ability to conceive, Elizabeth is miraculously pregnant. And Zechariah, because of his doubt, is miraculously silent. And after the baby is born, Zechariah regains his ability to speak. He names the child John as Gabriel instructed. Then he's filled with the Holy Spirit, begins to prophesy. This is our text for today. This is how we got here. And so let's look at the passage in full one more time this morning. Open up to Luke 1, 67 to 79. And his father... Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise, the day spring, shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So here we have this 
cranky and cursed old man, he opens up his mouth for the first time, but his words aren't bitter, they're beautiful. And what was so profound to Zechariah, and why is this important for us to consider today? Here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that salvation has come into the world. We're going to see that salvation is more than we could have ever dreamed of. And lastly, as we close today, like Zechariah, we'll be encouraged to wait and believe in God's salvation. So our first section for today is this, that salvation has come into the world. And in this section, we're going to see two reasons why. And the first reason is because of God's mercy, and the second is because God keeps His promises. Now, our primary text concerns the last prophecy about Jesus before He came, but consider the first prophecy about Jesus in Scripture comes almost simultaneously with God's first act of mercy towards humanity. Jesus and mercy have always been intertwined. Jesus has always been the solution to our problem with sin and our separation from God. In the Garden of Eden, Adam, the first man, is told in Genesis 2.16, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And after Adam and Eve are deceived by the serpent and take and eat this fruit, God finds them. Their sin is exposed and God talks to them. Have you ever thought about that? He doesn't kill them. He talks to them like children. He tells them what life will be like now, what the consequences for their disobedience will be, and then God himself clothes them in their nakedness. In the middle of the failure and the heartache of it all, God doesn't destroy humanity. Instead, He shows mercy. Our God is merciful. And in Genesis 3.15, we see the first proclaiming of God's salvation. When to the serpent, the Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The hope of salvation, the hope of a Savior who will crush sin and Satan, this has been with us since the fall. And this is where it began. The story of God's mercy and God's promise-keeping, what God has said He will do. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Each of them saw the foundation of God's salvation being built. A people created for God's possession. A righteous law that promised blessing. A family tree from which God's Savior would come. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Micah, and others, they all prophesy and fill in details. What will this king be like? What will he do and go through because of God's love for his people? They make God's plan of redemption clearer and more beautiful. And generation after generation, God forgives and restores. He forgives and restores. He calls His people back, though they turn from Him. 
And at multiple points in redemptive history, the only thing holding God's plan of salvation together, the only reason the ship stays on course, it's two things. God is merciful and He keeps His promises. So do you believe it? The answer is yes. Amen. (laughs) Praise God for the gift of faith that He's given you. This is only something that God can do. And it should cause you to rejoice all the more that He's working this way in your heart. But if you don't believe it, if you are functionally operating as though God is not merciful and that He doesn't keep His promises, think about what might change in your life if you did. So often what can keep us from trusting God in His mercy and in His promises, in His promise-keeping, So many times it's our sin. We look at our own lives and the wrong decisions that we've made, the ways that we've messed up and hurt people and hidden away. And we say, well, God hasn't fixed me yet. I'm still messed up. I still sin. We convince ourselves that God doesn't want to see us. He doesn't want to talk to us. We move and react through life as if He can't keep His promises, as if He hasn't kept them to us. The church, it's God who is faithful and trustworthy even when we've been faithless. Our sin and our inability to keep our promises, it exposes our weaknesses, not God's. Our disobedience exposes our frailty, our helplessness, our faithlessness, not God's. And when we feel far from God, It's not God who's moved. God's grace is near. God's mercy is near. God's salvation is near. As James says in uh, James 4 verse 8, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So what are you waiting for? Turn to the Lord today and find him faithful in his mercy and in his promises. Like his promise for salvation in Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. His promise to help us evangelize and defend our faith in Luke 12.11-12, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And find Jesus faithful to His promise to be with us forever as we labor in the building of the church and disciple-making. When He says in Matthew 28, 20, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so whether you've walked with the Lord for years or the Spirit of God is calling you to take your first steps, don't wait in this. Salvation has come and is found in Jesus. Today I've been praying for you that God might give you faith in the middle of whatever you're facing. The great needs that we have and the dissatisfaction that we feel in our hearts, they're meant to point us to the one who is the only supply of true joy. And Zechariah has found it. He's found true joy. In verse 68, Zechariah's prophecy, it begins with exalting praise. Remember, he's had nine months of silence to think about what God is doing in this moment in history. And when he can open his mouth, 
and communicate again, he rejoices over God. He wasn't immediately convinced that he would be a father when Gabriel came to him and spoke to him. But he's now so convinced of God's salvation that he puts it in the past tense. Look at how Zechariah speaks of God's mercy and his promise keeping in Luke 1, 68 to 75. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days and later in verse 78 he goes on to say that everything that God is doing is because of the tender mercy of our God Now, tender is not a word I'd use for a relationship that is far off and in the background, as if God has just set up the world and tossed it away, looks at it from afar. Tender is a word we'd use for how a mother is with a newborn child. Tender describes how you come alongside a brother or a sister in the middle of their deepest grief. But here, tender, it also describes the mercy of our God. God's mercy is tender mercy, promised mercy. It is sure and trustworthy mercy that has been in the works for a long time. In the text, look again at why it says that God has visited and redeemed His people. Verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Do you remember what God promised Abraham? In Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Jesus Christ, God has done exactly what he promised. And the entire earth has been blessed with the invitation to come and see and believe in God's salvation from sin. God has made a way where there was no way. And by God's grace, the old sacrificial system could, by the shedding of blood, imperfectly atone for sin. But in Jesus' coming and dying on the cross for sin, the earth is blessed with a way to be restored to God and to stand before Him as righteous. And this brings us to our next section because this is just one of the many ways that salvation is more than we could have ever dreamed of. Have your expectations ever been completely shattered? Have you ever had a preconceived idea that was just wrong by like an order of magnitude, but in a good way? 
You know, five years ago, when I was first considering the call to come and be a part of Sovereign Hope Church in Missoula, Montana, I had no idea what to expect about this part of the country. I think I initially imagined a sparsely populated wasteland. (laughs) Something like a desert, but cold. And while I'm kind of right, admit it, (laughs) right? Driving on 93 today, it was like hyperspace. It was so cold and snowy and impossible to drive, and I was fishtailing the whole way here. And here we are in the wasteland in our warehouse. (laughs) Now, the truth is that that happens. This season we're in happens. But I was really, really wrong about what it's like here most of the time. You know, my wife and I, we have a favorite month here in western Montana. It's not December. Um, Our favorite month is May. We like May uh, because after all the snow and the gray days that hang over you like a weighted blanket, uh, we anticipate May. We long for May. We talk about it. We make plans for it because that's when it warms up and the grass is back, the sun is bright, the skies are blue, and the days are so long that you can still see trails of sunlight behind the mountains at 11 p.m. We wait for May because May in Missoula is unlike anything. It's so beautiful. I didn't even have a category for it before I came here, before I lived here and I saw it. The salvation that God has been planning for humanity from eternity past is like that. So complete and amazing and good that you couldn't dream it up on your most imaginative day. Zechariah could have never dreamed the Messiah would have to die to redeem God's people. Just think about how over the course of traveling together year after year, Jesus had to explain his death and his resurrection multiple times to those closest to him. And the disciples, they still didn't get it. None of the Jews in Jesus' day would have. And so when Zechariah says that God has visited and redeemed his people, when he says in verse 71 that we'll be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, when he says in verse 79 that the Messiah will give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, Zechariah is hoping that his people, Israel, will be delivered from the oppression of Roman rule. And that the Messiah, this king promised out of David's family line, he will reign over them instead. But God's salvation is an order of magnitude better than he could have ever imagined. Because we're not just saved from man's oppression. We're saved from sin's oppression. This is massively good news. Because the greatest problem that the world has ever faced, it isn't the anger, the violence, and the oppression of one nation against another, or one human against another. Our greatest problem is that we've sinned against a holy God, and in that condition, we find ourselves justly deserving God's wrath. Now in America, we may not feel this hope as profoundly as some of our brothers and sisters around the world do that we are uh, not just saved from man's oppression, but we're saved from sin's oppression. Because there are millions of Christians today who live in countries that are opposed and closed to the gospel. 
and the governmental or cultural persecution that they experience, it can range from a simple bureaucratic difficulty to imprisonment or even death. And so the new gospel reality of deliverance from sin through Jesus Christ, it gives us boldness and comfort in a hostile world. Our greatest oppressor has been defeated, and if our greatest fears have been relieved, every other fear becomes smaller. We, like the psalmist in Psalm 118, verses 5 to 7, can say, Out of my distress I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Do you remember what Jesus has to say about our enemies from Matthew 5? In verse 44, he says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is astounding. This is Jesus revealing what God's kingdom is like because we've been forgiven by God when we didn't deserve it. We can forgive others when they don't deserve it. And the gospel change that God is working through us, it's then felt and seen, and it calls others to find out who this Savior is. Zechariah is right that Jesus' redemption will save us from our enemies, but it's just so much better than he thought. We're not just saved from our enemies, we're saved from our greatest enemy, death. Now, I don't know about you, But when I see uh, the verses in our passage that say we'll be saved from the hand of our enemies or we'll be delivered from the hand of our enemies, I have trouble thinking about who my enemy is. There are no bullies in my life, except for Mike Vandersanden, but that's a different (laughs) story. And I've never been a soldier. I've never faced an enemy combatant. I have no idea what that's like. But all of us feel the profound wrongness of our greatest enemy. He brings sorrow and pain, anger, anxiety, and fear and loss and destruction. There are many in our congregation today that have recently felt the pain and the sorrows that this enemy brings. And still many more who are walking close beside those who are in the middle of profound physical sufferings and in end-of-life ailments. And Romans 6.23 tells us plainly who this enemy is and where he came from. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. And not just the passing of our mortal bodies, but a spiritual death as well. For those who die in their sins... Death and separation from God are frightening truths. But I only read half of Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but there is hope. And here's the full verse. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Zechariah is right again, but it's so much better. God's Messiah will save us from our enemy our greatest enemy, and the wage of sin, death, it's paid for by Jesus himself. In the cross, Jesus would take everything that we deserved, and by faith, we receive all that he deserves. Death loses its sting because of the eternal inheritance that Jesus 
has delivered to us through faith. And this brings us to the last way that salvation is better than Zechariah could have ever dreamed. And it's that we're not just saved for now. We're saved for eternity. In our text, picking up at Luke 1, 74 to 75, it says, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. To be restored to God so fully, so completely, that we might stand before Him without fear, in holiness, in righteousness? This sounds like the relationship that God had with humanity in the Garden of Eden. That's how good this salvation is. That's how complete it is. Eternity with God, restored with fellowship and peace. But there is something different, you know? The relationship is not exactly the same as it was before. It's deeper. And when Zechariah in verse 77 to 78 talks about the message that his son John will preach, he says that this message will give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. And so, yes... Something has changed. The relationship is deeper, and it's deeper because now we know God's grace. We sinned against God, and God has forgiven us at a great cost. Not because we deserved it, or merited it, or worked for it, or earned it, or did more good than bad. Salvation and eternity with God without fear, in holiness, in righteousness, forever. This is a gift. This is the gift of God and of His grace. And so now we know and obey and love and wonder and worship fueled by God's grace and wonder and awe that the gospel is the fuel for a life of worship that will extend and carry us into eternity. And when Jesus came to this earth, the grace of God appeared. He visited and redeemed His people. As we begin to wrap things up, let's look ahead to what Paul said about Jesus' visitation in the book of Titus. In Titus 2, verses 11 to 14, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus Christ, the grace of God, has appeared. And he's our blessed hope for the future. Our blessed hope will appear again in glory. The wait is over, but the wait has also just begun. And this is what the season of Advent is about. It's about this unique place in history that we occupy with the ability to look back and forward. Christ has come, and Christ will come again. And for a little while, we're here in between. And so, here in our last section, what do we do for now? We wait and believe in God's salvation. And there are two ways 
in which we'll do this. We trust in the message and we trust in the Savior. In the 12 verses of Zechariah's prophecy, only two speak of Zechariah's son, John, who will grow up to be John the Baptist. And this is what he says, Luke 1, 76 to 77. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Salvation in the forgiveness of sins. This is the message that changes everything. John the Baptist had it. Today we have it. And today that's what I hope you've heard. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1, 15-16 puts it this way, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received a mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. What a simple and profound and beautiful message. And this is the message that we've been entrusted with because it's only by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ that sinners can be saved. And this is why our church is centered around the preaching of the gospel. This is why we faithfully preach it every week. This is why we're training pastoral residents who will preach This is why we support missionaries who bring the gospel around the world. (coughs) This is why we meet on the university campus each week, preach the gospel to students. The preaching of the gospel is how people know about God's mercy and his promises. How can people know the message to believe for salvation if they've never heard it? Paul in Romans 10 verse 14 says, How then? Will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? When you think about it, it's an amazing thing that we're a part of here. Each time we gather, we're a part of something holy here and set apart for God's purpose. Because the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. When we gather, we remind ourselves about Christ's coming, Christ's salvation, Christ's return. We let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. We teach one another. We admonish one another in all wisdom. We sing songs of thankfulness together. We do this because we want to give the knowledge of salvation away. And then trust the Holy Spirit to turn hearts in faith. Sorry. So we trust in the message, but we also trust in the Savior. We trust in the Savior. And let's finish our text, Luke 1, 76 to 79. Hmm. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you'll go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God 
whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high <clears throat> to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. To wait and believe in God's salvation is to let the light of Christ shine on you. It's to let the light of his word and his gospel guide you. In Jesus' own words, he says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. <clears throat> so does this word of God light the path of your life today? What does following Christ look like for you? On the face of it, waiting and believing sounds extremely passive. But believing is full of activity. It demands something of you. It'll change you. How you spend your time, your money, your energy, how you talk, how you dress, what you do for fun, how, what you watch on TV, what you do on Friday night, how you parent, how you treat your spouse, how you treat anybody. Only believers will do the hard work of belief, but they'll do it with joy because of the incredible gift of God's grace in the gospel. So do you do the work of belief? What's changed? And what needs to change while we're here between Christ's coming and His coming again? <clears throat> we're waiting for Christ's return, but don't wait on this. Treasure Christ in your heart today, and He will be your treasure forever. In the first Advent, Zechariah couldn't have imagined how perfect and how complete and how beautiful God's salvation would be. And when Christ comes again in the second advent, he himself will bring the dawn of a new eternal day, and it will be better than we could ever have dreamed of. <coughs> the day spring from on high hath visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The wait is over for the salvation that Jesus brings. May we live lives of worship now, do the work of believing now, and ready our hearts for that moment when our faith will be made sight and Jesus brings a new eternal day. Let's pray together. Father God, Lord, I pray that we would long for your coming. Lord, that we would wait with patience for your return. God, that we would see uh, your faithfulness throughout history, Lord, and it would cause our hearts to remain steadfast. Lord, we thank you for the salvation that you've brought and that it's so much better than we could have ever imagined. Lord, I pray that we would not... Um, that salvation wouldn't become common to us, but that it would remain the most beautiful and transforming truth we've ever heard. God, I pray that in this season of busyness that you would guide our feet in the way of peace. God, that we would be peace bringers. God, that we would be people that can rest in the salvation that you've brought. 
And Lord, I pray uh, that as we go into this season that we would worship, that we'd worship you in your holiness, that we'd worship you in your goodness, that we'd worship you for your grace and your mercy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.